The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. It's a joy and a privilege to be here with you all this morning. And uh, Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22 and also in Luke 9. The title of this morning's message is, What Keeps People From Truly Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in Faith? What Keeps People From Truly Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in Faith? Matthew chapter 8, let's go ahead and stand as we read the Word of God together. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse number 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, that is teacher, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me, that is, permit me to first go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Now we see a, a third man, there's two men here, but a third man actually approaches Jesus, and we see that recorded in Luke chapter 9. So if you look at Luke 9, Luke chapter 9, towards the end of the chapter, verses 61 and 62, we see two men who come to Jesus saying, we're going to follow you, Lord. And then our Lord makes some statements, and as far as we know, they bail out, they take off, they don't follow the Lord. Now there's a third man that comes and says, he will follow the Lord as well. Luke nine sixty-one, And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but... Let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's bow in a word of prayer as we look at our text this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful to come before you in this time of worship, to worship you in song as we sing and as we pray. And as we listen to your word, both read and taught this morning, Lord, we do ask that you would open the hearts and minds of everyone who is gathered here in this church building to hear the preaching of your word, that you would have your will and way in our lives. Help us, help true believers, Lord, to be strengthened in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And also pray for those who are not true believers, those who have not come to a genuine repentance towards God, and a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that in your grace and mercy, you would open their hearts to the truth of your word as you did Lydia in Acts 16, and that you would draw them savingly unto yourself. Father, we pray that as your word is taught this morning, that Christ would be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. Thank you, Lord, 
for your word. Bless the preaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Around 19 years ago, and my home church was in Bakersfield, California, I remember a situation we had when we were out and we were on a Saturday door knocking, going door to door, giving out gospel tracts, inviting people to church. We ran in this apartment complex. My wife and I ran into a, a young man and we began to talk to him about the Lord. And it was kind of an unusual situation because he was so interested in the Bible. And uh, we began to talk to him about church and he said he was interested in coming and visiting we talked to him about the Lord and what the Bible says about salvation. He be he began to be very agreeable, and that's kind of a rare thing when you go out there. And of salvation. In fact, he was so con- easy to talk to. I thought he was going to ask me, like the Philippian jailer, and say, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" And I would point him to Christ, and he would get saved at the doorstep. He had to leave, and he was on his way to an appointment, and I asked him, well, could we come back and sit down and open the Word of God and talk a little bit more what the Bible says about salvation? Because the Bible makes it very clear, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He says, certainly you're welcome to come back later. Now, I sort of guess what his problem was, but not that I'm a prophetic in any way, just by his mannerisms. We came back later on that evening. We sat down to talk to him about his salvation. And we began to talk to him about sin and its penalty and the need to repent and to believe in Christ to be saved. How it is a free gift of God's grace that God offers the sinners in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the gospel, all men are bidden to come to Christ to believe and to be saved. And of course, that salvation is offered and is received by faith. But with faith, there's also as Spurgeon said that Siamese twin of faith and repentance. As we began to deal with the issue of repentance of sin and what it meant to genuinely follow Christ as a Christian, he began to have second thoughts about this issue of believing in Christ and following the Lord. He says, I have a little problem. And I said, well, what's your little problem? He goes, well, and this is, remember, this is around 19 years ago. Well, the problem is, said this young man, is that I want to live with a man the way you live with your wife. I love him the same way you love your wife. And my wife's eyes just went, how could you make that comparison? Begin to deal with the issue of his lifestyle, which, according to Scripture, is sin and an abomination before God. And that God offers salvation to anyone who's trapped in any type of sexual sin. There is salvation available, but a man must repent of his sin, not excuse his sin. And as he began to hear that, he says, man, I want the Lord. I want this gift of salvation. But, do I, I really don't want to change my lifestyle. So he was outwardly agreeable to the facts of the gospel, but he would not repent of his sin And come to Christ without reservation as his Savior from his sin. And as he is, Lord of all. He wouldn't do that. He went away lost. Here in Matthew chapter 8, we have a crowd of people that at least profess to believe in the Lord. 
Among this crowd are three men, three would-be true disciples. They would be at least at first appearance. They seem to want to follow the Lord. They seem to have a faith in the Lord, but they're exposed as being false believers as our Lord deals with them. There are many professing believers today, just as there was in Matthew chapter 8 in the first century. You see, people were attracted to Christ for a variety of reasons. Some, according to, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, as our Lord preached the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished by the authority by which he spoke. For the average rabbi of the first century, before he made a point, an authoritative point, he would quote, Rabbi after rabbi after rabbi to support his conclusion, but not Jesus. He would say things like, you, you have heard that it's been said of them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh after a woman to lust after her, committeth adultery with her already in his heart. He wouldn't quote from a rabbi, he would say, but I say it with the authority of God himself. They were so stunned at his message in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that the end of the chapter says in verse 28, the people were astonished at his doctrine and his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority. And so the crowds were attracted by which, because of the Lord's authority as he taught authoritatively the word of God. And so the crowds gathered and they seemed to be following him at least temporally. They were attracted by the miraculous works of Christ. Jesus had done things that had never been seen in human history since the creation of the world. In John 9, we see the example of Jesus seeing the blind man who had been blind from birth. Our Lord goes there and he spits in the mud and grabs the mud and puts it in his eyeballs and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash. The blind man did, and then he was able to see perfectly. That had never been done in history, that a man who had been born blind would be given new eyeballs. And our Lord did that, and the crowds were attracted by the Lord. By his works that he was doing, by his works of feeding the multitude. As he did in John chapter 6. He took a little boy's lunch of his two little sardine fishes, his five little biscuits, I don't know if it was biscuits and gravy, though, Pastor Smith, but it may have been biscuits and gravy, but he took those biscuits and those fish, and our Lord multiplied them to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And as a result of that, they wanted to make him king. You would think a revival broke out for thousands of people are saying they believe in Christ and are following Christ. To such an extent that the next day the same crowd follows our Lord. And our Lord begins to speak hard things that were hard for them to accept. They begin to speak about the necessity of faith in his atoning work under the metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And the people were offended at that. And in order to encourage his disciples knowing that this crowd was going to turn on him, Jesus reminded his disciples in different ways. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. No man can come unto me unless the Father draw him. And I'll raise him up in the last day. In other words, as this crowd leaves, disciples know they're not in control. I'm in control. I am sovereign. 
And in the midst of all that, people saw his works of feeding the multitude. They saw his works of opening the eyes of the blind, of raising the dead, and they were attracted to the Lord. So they, uh, just to be part of that crowd, you would think everyone would want a bracelet that says WWJD, and they want to follow the Lord. And you would think there's many, many, many followers. They were impressed by his power. In Luke 8, he demonstrates his power as he tells his disciples, let us get into the boat and go to the other side. He gave that wonderful promise, we're going to the other side, but in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, they come into a very vicious storm. And our Lord is asleep inside the boat. And as the water is coming in, as the wind is blowing, and the waves are there in the sea, these experienced fishermen are fearful of their lives. And they come to Jesus saying, Lord, don't you care that we perish? Perish? Die? Jesus already said, based on his word, we're going to the other side. And when Jesus says you're going to go to the other side, that means you're going to go to the other side. You're not going to die in the middle of that lake. And yet in the midst of it, they think they're going to perish, and our Lord rebukes them and says, where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered at Jesus. For Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the waves. And immediately those waves that were splashing, immediately the sea became like glass. The wind that was blowing immediately ceased at the word of Christ. The disciples were fearful of their lives, and then they saw this display of power, and they said, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the waves obey him. They were stunned. They were frightened that there was a storm out there. Now they're frightened that God is in there in the boat with them. They couldn't believe it. All of this is being done by Christ. He's displaying the power of God in his ministry. Lots of people are following. But not everyone who outwardly follows the Lord for a while, and its application, not everyone who necessarily attends a church once in a while, is a genuine Christian. Our Lord began to make a difference between the wheat and the shaft, between the true and the false believer. Among those professing believers in Matthew chapter 8, some were true Christians, no doubt, but others were not. And we meet three men in our text. They're part of this crowd that has been oohed and awed by Christ, and they seem to say they're followers, and they're going to follow Jesus until Jesus makes these statements, and as far as we know, they turn tail and they leave the Lord. What keeps men from Christ? What are some barriers that keep men from coming to a true and saving faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Well, we're given three, three barriers here. The first thing I want you to note here in Matthew 18, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. What keeps men from Christ? Number one is, we can say, personal comfort or living a life of ease. Living a life of ease. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. As our Lord is getting into a boat to go to the other side, among the multitudes, three men approached Jesus. 
And the disciples are excited so they, because these men seem to be so dedicated to the Lord that they want to follow him more intimately and closely. The Bible tells us that the first man is a certain scribe. And he says to the Lord, Master, meaning teacher, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Wherever you go, I'm going to follow you, said this scribe. Now, the scribes were authorities in Jewish law. They were closely associated with the Pharisees in the first century. They were highly educated and highly respected in Jewish society. So, if a man was a scribe, people would look up to him. This is an educated man. This is a man who knows the Bible. He is a holy man in many ways. And this man, this scribe who is a teacher of the Bible, he is now coming publicly and calling Jesus his teacher. Now, scribes were teachers, but rarely would they call someone else their teacher. And yet we have this scribe coming, and as he approaches the Lord, he says, Teacher, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And I could imagine that the disciples of our Lord are excited. Wow! This scribe who's a teacher is calling Jesus teacher. Man, this guy must be a true believer. He's outwardly saying the right things. But just because you say the right things doesn't mean that you have the right heart attitude of genuine faith in Christ. In prison, I so many interesting characters in there. There are times I'm walking, I'm on my way to, the, to my study. We have a chapel, I have my office and my study there. Once in a while, I've had this happen several times, a man will yell, Pastor! Jesus is Lord. I guess he expected me to say, Whoa! This guy's anointed. I don't know what he was expecting. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Okay. (laughs) They know how to say the right things. They may even come to the chapel and say, Hallelujah. This man had the right words, and the disciples are probably thinking, Wow, here's a teacher. A very educated man. A man who comes from a very, who is most likely living a very comfortable lifestyle, and now he calls Jesus teacher, and he says he will follow anywhere Jesus goes? Hey, the Lord can really use someone like him. Think about it. This guy lived in the year 2015, and he was a popular, highly educated man, and he says, I'm going to follow the Lord no matter what, man. The guy would be giving his testimony within a week at a megachurch. How he found the Lord. But man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. We may impress people by religious sayings, but our Lord knows the heart of the matter. Our Lord didn't question the man's sincerity, but he does mention, hey, Mr. Scribe, do you realize what it means to follow me? I mean, you say these words, I'm going to follow you whithersoever thou goest, but do you understand what that entails? And then our Lord makes the statement in verse 20. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. That is to say, Jesus had fewer comforts, physical comforts, than many animals. Foxes have their little holes they call their home, their house. The birds of the air, they may not have a mansion, but they have their own nest that they own. 
but the Son of Man, a messianic title taken from Daniel chapter 7, a title given to the Messiah, emphasizing the fact that the Messiah would be a would come in humility to serve. But the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. That is, Jesus had no place of his own, no house that he owned or property. We see this, for example, in John 7, after our Lord healed the man. The Bible says that everyone went to his home. But John records, but Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Everybody went to the home they owned, but our Lord went to the mountains to pray with his Father. Many times we hear in the Gospels that Jesus would stay with Peter in his home in Capernaum. Or that he would stay in Bethany at the house of Lazarus. But you don't read in the Bible that Jesus stayed at his own house, much less his own mansion on this earth. Jesus' purpose in making such a statement was obvious. It was to make the scribe count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Impressive words of commitment are easy to make, especially when one doesn't recognize what it means to truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what our Lord illustrated in the, in the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13, how he gave the parable of a sower who went out to sow seed out of his bag, and how that seed, which represents the message of the gospel, the word of God would fall on different soils. And those soils represented different hearts, different receptions to the gospel. And the first soil was that shallow ground. The shallow ground here upon which the, the, the seed fell, and yet there's only a small layer of dirt, and underneath was limestone. And because there was a lot of moisture trapped there, that seed would fall and quickly spring up. But it never would produce any fruit because it didn't have any roots to go down. And our Lord says that re represents the man who hears the word. And Aeon, that is, and immediately with joy he receives it. Yet he doesn't have root in himself. But doeth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He is scandalized by the gospel and he becomes a permanent backslider, but really a false convert. This is the man who says, who hears... The, the good news of the gospel, he hears some of the benefits of the gospel. Eternal life, adoption into the family of God. He hears these good things, and then he may, even, he may even hear some other things that are not true. He may be hearing the, true, the, the lie that if you become a Christian, you can have your best life now. And be a millionaire and be healthy and wealthy. And, and boy, God will be on your side and he'll be like a motivational life coach. And he'll help you, help you be successful and you can have the American dream. Maybe they hear that type of message, but then when they realize that there's a price to pay to follow Christ, there's a cross to bear, there's persecution to suffer if you're going to live for the Lord, the Bible says they're offended by that message and they leave and they turn. Our Lord's words hit this scribe where he was weak and unwilling. What was his loyalty? His loyalty was to his own comfort. We sing the hymn, Standing on the Promises of God, and that is a tremendous hymn. But God also gives us some promises, such as 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
We say, well, and especially in, in prison ministry, there's a lot of the word-faith movement, the health and wealth gospel, the blab it and grab it, the name it and claim it, the if you say the right words, abracadabra, then you can have this personal wealth and this successful life. That if you have true faith, these blessings must come. So, well, you need to read maybe the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Look at what true faith got these men on a temporal basis. Hebrews 11.36 reminds us of these men of faith, these women of faith, that they had, true, had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. They, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy of. You see, the scribe came to Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He thought if he added Jesus to his life, his life would be even more comfortable. Well, the Christian life is not adding Jesus to one's own way of life. It is a renouncing of your old life. And it is an embracing with no reserves, Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It is true that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. That is true. It is not based on a certain level of dedication that you have that God somehow rewards you. If God were to give us what we deserve, we would get hell. It's based on the work of Christ. This is true. And yes, salvation is a free gift of the grace of God Yet the Christian life is costly. And it doesn't do anyone any good to hide those realities in the Word of God. I remember it must have been 16, 17, 16 years ago that my wife and I and my mother-in-law took my, my brother-in-law to go drop him off at the Army recruiter's office. He had enrolled to become a soldier. And you know what? It was free for him to join the Army. It was free. No, it wasn't free. They gave him a $10,000 bonus. Not only did they give him as a gift that money, but they also gave him full medical benefits, which he didn't have before. He had received so much as a gift for joining the army. Of course, in the fine print, it says you may be blown up in Iraq too. <laughs> it could cost you your life as well. And so it's true that salvation is a free gift. But to follow Christ is costly. And our Lord tells this man, do you realize that your personal comfort could be sacrificed if you follow me? Have you thought about that? This is the way our Lord called people unto himself. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. Our Lord's message was, if any man will, his, his message was not, if any man will come after me, let him love himself. Look in the mirror and say, man, you're special, Bob. You're somebody. Yes, we are some. We're, we're quite sinners, aren't we? <laughs> no, it wasn't love yourself. It was deny yourself. Pick up your cross. The cross was not just a jewelry, piece of jewelry run, worn around the neck. Or I, as I say in prison, it was, it's not just a symbol to tattoo on your body. It was a symbol of death, of execution. 
When our Lord talked about, if you're going to follow me, you must be willing to bear the cross. They understood that very clearly in the first century. It meant, if you're going to follow Christ, realize you may, you may or may not, but you may pay with your life, your physical life. What keeps men from truly coming to faith in Christ? Many don't want to forsake their personal comfort. That is really number one in their life. Secondly, what keeps men from coming truly to the Lord Jesus Christ, secondly, is love of money. Love of money. Look at verse number 21, Matthew eight twenty-one. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer or permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, this guy is called here a disciple, just as many who abandoned Jesus in John 6 were called disciples. Disciple is simply someone who follows, like an apprentice, someone who follows. This man had followed Christ, at least temporally. I don't know if it was a week, two weeks, two months, but he was following Jesus. He probably had seen Jesus do miracles, and he was in the background shouting, Hallelujah! He probably seen Jesus multiply the food and say, Praise the Lord, give me some of that heavenly tilapia. He was in the background probably shouting and saying, Woo, I'm for the Lord. Follow the Lord. I'm a follower of the Lord. And now he comes saying he's really going to follow the Lord. But, Lord, suffer, permit me first to go and bury my father. The Jews usually took 30 days to mourn when a relative died. To give a parent an honorable burial was more important than even studying the law of God. But I don't think this is the issue here. The man's asking for permission to bury his father didn't mean that his dad was dead. It was a Near Eastern figure of speech. He's telling our Lord, I will follow you. Sign me up. I'm one of your Christian soldiers. Onward, Christian soldiers. Sign me up. I'm going to follow you when my dad dies. His dad could die in a week, a month, four years, 40, 50 years. But his father has a business. He has an inheritance to give him money. And what he's saying is, Lord, I will follow you, but my, you know, money is important. You know, God wants you to be happy. You know, I got to have my money first. And after I have my money and I'm financially set, then I'm going to follow you then, Lord. I'm going to follow you then. What was he saying? I'll follow Jesus, but he will not be number one. Money's number one. I'm going to pursue my dreams. It's all about money. If I have time for the Lord, then maybe I'll give him second, third, or fourth place in my life. This superficial disciple did not want to risk losing his inheritance by committing himself fully to the Lord. Jesus therefore said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Another figure of speech here. Our Lord is saying, let those who are spiritually dead care and live for the things of this world. Let the person who is spiritually dead, let him live for money. Let him bow before the dollar. Let him worship gold instead of God. Let the spiritually dead have those priorities, but if you're my disciple, follow me. That's to be number one. Follow me. 
In Luke 9.60, Jesus said, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. In other words, your priority is not money. As a disciple, your priority is Christ and his gospel. What's most important is not that you have a five-bedroom house and a four-car garage or four-wagon garage, if it would be in the first century, but that you follow Christ and make much of the gospel. That is your responsibility as my disciple. Make much of the gospel and proclaim the gospel. Let the lost world worship money. Let them put money, number one, but not you if you're a disciple. I'm to be first. I'm to be your Lord. It is not, it is not that any amount of self-denial or sacrifice can earn a man's salvation. A man cannot earn it. But anything, anything that is held more dearly than Christ is a barrier to coming to faith in Christ. Jesus will not be number two or number three on your list of idols. Even an American idol. How's that? He will not be third or fourth. He's Lord, and he must be embraced as such. Our Lord made it clear in Luke 16, 13. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon riches. Now when we think no man can serve two masters, we think, well, my cousin Jill, she works for Walmart and Burger King. But we're not talking about employment in America. We're talking slave language here. A man who was a slave could only have one ultimate master. He can't have two masters. One slave, one master per slave. A man could either be a slave of God or his real God. He is a slave to money. But you can't have both as your masters. Our Lord made it clear. Paul, in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 8, says, With food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Destruction and perdition. Those who love money will destroy themselves both physically and eternally if that is their God. So this is quite contrary to the American dream now. Well, this is the Bible's message. And it contradicted the mentality of the first century that the Messiah is coming. He's going he's gonna to fulfill all our physical desires uh, uh, take care of all of our job problems. Our Lord calls them to put him first instead of their love for money. What keeps men from Christ? A love of ease, a love of money. There's a third thing here in Luke 9. If you turn to Luke chapter 9. What keeps men from coming to a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Thirdly, it can be it can be a person's family. As crazy as that sounds, it could be a person's family. Luke 9.61 It 
And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But, another one of those buts, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a farewell party, a farewell barbecue as you're getting ready to go to full-time ministry somewhere else and you get together with your family and you have a barbecue and you have carne asada on there with a little bit of chile there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. Our Lord is not saying it's wrong to have a, a farewell barbecue with your family. But you see, I remind you again, as in John chapter 2, our Lord knows what is in every man. He knows not only what you say, but why you say what you say. Now, I don't. I just, I don't see anyone's heart. But the Lord does. He sees people's motivation for what they say. Jesus knew the man's heart and his motivation. He was loyal to and had in the position of number one in his life, his family. It was about his family being number one. Certainly God wants us to love our family. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. God commands us to honor our parents, to love them. And as you live under the roof, regardless whether you're 21 or 18, if you live under the roof, you're to obey your mom and dad. God commands it. But though the Lord commands those things, you're not to worship family. Family cannot be number one. One. I think I understand that better, the passage better, not only through study of the word, but study of culture. In our church, we have a large family that is Middle Eastern. Though they are not Jewish, they're related. And in their family, it's very tight, very tight. You work and you help first your family. In fact, it's so patriarchal. I remember before the great-grandfather passed away, he had the final say when it came to marriage. So here's little George, then get married to little Susie. Little George would come and talk to great-grandfather and say, I want to marry Susie. He would talk to them, and then he gives approval or disapproval. <laughs> he had the final say. I mean, family was big time. I, family is, I mean, it's, it's so important to get the approval of your family. Very strong knit, very big in loyalty. You do not do that because a family won't approve. Families is everything. And is that Middle Eastern culture in which our Lord spoke these words, not in an individualistic American society where everybody's on their own. It's in a society where families everything. But our Lord makes it clear, I must be above your family. Do you know that's what it means to be my, my disciple? That I'm, your loyalty to me is going to be above your family. Do you, do you know that? Jesus made it clear that commitment to him is total and unreserved, or it's not true commitment. In Matthew 10, 34, our Lord said, Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I have came not to send peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. 
He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, when you come to Christ, you come with no strings attached. In prison, I would remind the men, when you go to court, you often want to strike a deal with the DA, the district attorney. Isn't that right? They shake their heads, yes, we want a good deal. We strike up a deal. We make a bargain with the district attorney for we can lessen our time. Okay. But when you come to Christ, you make no deal with him. He's not the DA. You have nothing, nothing that Christ needs. And he has everything you need. You come to Christ, if you come in true faith, with no strings attached, no bargains made. I will come to Jesus and truly believe in him and become a Christian, but can I live this way? I'll come to the Lord, but does that mean I have to change this? There is no buts about it. You come with no strings attached to Christ for who he is, a savior from sin, and he is Lord. Coming to Jesus is coming to Christ on his terms, not our terms. We don't set the terms he does. I remember the church that my wife and I got married in over 20 years ago. We were Sunday school teachers there in church, and there was a young lady. And I believe her name was Julie. She seemed extra young lady. She seemed to be extra sad one Sunday. Come to find out that her family disinherited her. They totally rejected her because she was Jewish. And she had embraced Jesus Christ as her Messiah. She understood as she heard the gospel, if she will come to Christ and embrace Christ as her Savior and Lord, as her Messiah, her family would reject her. To take Christ means to turn on family. To turn on Christ, then you can remain within your family. And she paid that price in coming to Christ. And this is the idea, you come to Christ, family must be loved and honored, but they can't be first. They can't be first. Friends can't be first. I'm going to become a Christian, but I want to be cool and with my friends. No, friends can't be first. Christ must be first. Christ must be first. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the challenge of your word. As we looked at these barriers of what keeps people from truly coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those that are true believers that you would help us, O oh God. Forgive us by your grace for the times that we have failed to follow you faithfully. Strengthen the faith of true disciples here this morning. Help us, O oh Lord, in our commitment to you above any type of family or friend commitment, above money, above a life of ease. Help us, O oh Lord, as your people. I pray also for those who are spiritually are not truly saved, who love the praise of men more than the Lord, whose heart is for the world, the things of this world, the money of this world, that is number one in their heart. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation, that today they would repent of their own sin and come with, with no strings attached, that they would come to Jesus by faith to take hold of Christ as Savior and Lord, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word 
to all the lives of those that are gathered here in this church building. Thank you, Father, for your word. Bless your truth to every life. For we ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.